0: By becoming a monthly patron you'll also receive our weekly newsletter
1: welcome to the quillette podcast i'm jonathan k my guest this week needs no introduction because you just heard him described by my boss in the generic podcast intro he's toby young a host of the quillette podcast an author and editor at quillette and the founder of the uk-based free speech union a uk-based organization that young describes as a non-partisan mass membership public interest body that stands up for the speech rights of its members. Now, as you'll hear, I was kind of skeptical about the Free Speech Union, in part because I thought that, in this age of cancel culture, a lot of people would get cancelled just for joining it. But not only has the Free Speech Union thrived, it's chalked up some impressive victories. This week, Toby spoke to me by Skype from his home in the UK, about the Free Speech Union, the state of intellectual freedom, and our predictions for how the tide will turn against the censors in 2021. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Toby, I'm not going to pretend to be objective here because... Everybody listening knows that you and I share at least some beliefs when it comes to free speech and civil liberties and such. But you and I had a conversation around the time you were starting up the Free Speech Union, and I expressed some reservations because there are journalists and there are activists, and you're a journalist, we both work for Quillette, but this is an activist venture. I since have become a member of the Free Speech Union, so I guess I'm complicit in this venture, but were you concerned about blurring the line between being a journalist and being an activist? You know, I've never really
2: observed that line, to be honest. I've always been a kind of journalist activist. Well, not always been, but since really 2009, back when I wrote a piece for The Observer, a British broadsheet Sunday newspaper saying I wanted to set up a charter school. And this was on the eve of the Conservatives winning the 2010 general election in the UK, which made it possible to do that. Before that, it hadn't been possible. So I wrote a piece for The Observer saying I wanted to do that and inviting people to contact me if they wanted to help me. Lots of people did. And I set up a steering group and opened a school, one of Britain's first charter schools in 2011, and then three more after that. So I sort of since then kind of combined being an activist with being a journalist. Starting the Free Speech Union early this year wasn't a departure in that regard.
1: Let me push you on that a little bit, because what maybe a lot of your fans don't know is that before you were a rabble-rouser, you were part of the institutional journalistic scene. You worked at Vanity Fair, of all places. It's arguably the biggest in-club in journalism, or at least it was at the time. Didn't you get lectures or staff education about the lines that you had to observe? I was never really a straight
2: reporter. My specialty was kind of immersive journalism in which I would make myself the story. I would go off and do something crazy, like dress up as a woman for a night to see if I could pick up lipstick lesbians.
1: I can't even imagine how many times you'd be cancelled, like recancelled if you did that.
2: This story was dredged up when I was cancelled at the beginning of 2018. But it was, you know, stunt journalism of that kind was my specialty. And then opinion journalism too. So for me, that line was always pretty blurry.
1: When you started this up, this free speech union, and again, I expressed skepticism at the time, I mean, you used the term union, and a union implies the idea sort of all for one, one for all. Did you choose that metaphor in an explicit way, the idea being that people were going to engage in a kind of act of collective bargaining, that if you try and cancel one of us, we're all going to fight back?
2: Yeah, that was the general idea. That was the reason for calling it a union. And at one stage, I did explore actually making it legally a union but the shortcoming is that you're then regulated by the trade union regulator which uh, could create all sorts of headaches for us so we decided not to do that but yeah the idea is that one of the reasons political activists that set out with the intent to cancel somebody are often quite successful is because they hunt in packs. They create the impression that there are a large number of them, that something you've said or done has upset, offended a lot of people. So it seemed to me that the best way to protect people who are targeted in that way was to do it in numbers. They hunt in packs. We have to band together if we're going to fight back.
1: To some extent, isn't that something that websites like Quillette are already doing as part of their journalistic mission? You and I have been involved in numerous stories where, as you say, there was a pack of cliqueish cancel culture enthusiasts who have come after somebody. And after being exposed in the light of day, the mob campaign withers away because it can't withstand scrutiny. To what extent was the free speech union as you saw it necessary over and above the kind of scrutiny that good journalism provides
2: we can do more than we're able to do even at a publication like quillette i can organize open letters petitions if necessary i can find people pro bono legal support media and pr support kind of a, a suite of semi-professional services that someone who finds themselves in the crosshairs of an outrage mob can really use. As you say, I think at Quillette, if we tried to extend into those areas, we would be crossing a line into activism, which I think you and others would feel uncomfortable with. And I know I've pushed that in the past. And I think I've pushed you all as far as I can, as far as your comfort levels are concerned. But having said that, Claire has very kindly agreed to be one of the directors of the US branch of the Free Speech Union, which we're in the process of setting up. But I imagine she'll keep a pretty clear separation between church and state.
1: And just to be clear, that's Claire Lehman, our boss, who is the founder and editor in chief of Quillette. Like I said, you know, you have pushed the needle on this because I've become a member of one objection I had, there's always going to be speech that even free speech proponents realize is just beyond the pale. We're not talking about stuff that gets casually derided as fascistic on Twitter. That term has become meaningless to some extent. I'm talking about like real hardcore hate speech. Even someplace like the free speech union has to have boundaries. You have protocols of saying, you know what, that what you're saying here is just beyond the pale and we're not going to defend that and you're out.
2: Uh, General... Line is that we will only come to your defense if you've exercised your lawful right to free speech. So, if you've said anything that under British law is unlawful, then we would find it difficult, I think, to defend you. That's not to say that we would excommunicate you for saying something unlawful, kick you out of the organization. And in some cases, we will campaign, we are campaigning to change the law, to try and remove some of the restrictions on what people can lawfully say. That's our general rule. And we also, as far as the organizational rule is concerned, we have a statement of values, which we expect all our members to subscribe to. And broadly, it says that the only speech which we find unacceptable are attempts to intimidate people, to win the argument through intimidation, threats of violence, forms of harassment. If you engage in what we regard as anti-free speech practices, then we reserve the right to kick you out of the organization. But we are a pretty broad
1: church and quite permissive. Well, let's talk about individual cases. It's the holidays. We want to highlight some good news. I get the sense the landscape in this area is changing a little bit, and even leftists, maybe even especially leftists, are just sick of cancel culture, as it's sometimes called. Tell me a little bit about some of the successes that you've had with the free speech union.
2: One of our first successes was um, very shortly after we founded in February a woman called Selena Todd was due to speak at a international feminist conference at Exeter College Oxford which she had helped organize and raise money to put on and she herself is a long-standing feminist I guess you'd call her a second wave feminist and she's also the Oxford professor of modern history and a former columnist for The Guardian Britain's most liberal newspaper the night before she was due to give a sort of introductory welcoming speech at this international conference, she got a call from the organisers saying that some of the other people on the platform who didn't share her views on trans issues had said that if she shared a platform with them, they would withdraw. And instead of telling the people who'd made that threat to take a hike, the organisers panicked and called Selena Todd and said, look, I'm sorry, but you can't come and speak tomorrow morning. It was a great case for us because a lot of people had tried to pigeonhole the free speech union as a kind of organization which only protected the rights of male, pale and stale conservatives. We very much pitch it as a non-partisan organization open to people of all political views and none. But nonetheless, that was the kind of smear that was being used against us. So it was a great opportunity to try and correct that impression. Here was a gender critical feminist being no platform. We wrote to the rector, that's the title given to the head of Exeter College and complained that Selena Todd's speech rights had been violated and that this was also a breach of Exeter College and the University of Oxford's free speech policies. And surprisingly, we got a very quick response. The rector said that he had appointed a panel of Exeter College fellows to investigate the episode and to look into whether Selena Todd's speech rights had been violated and whether they breached their own policies in the universities. And they concluded that they had and that they agreed to then review their policies and procedures to make sure nothing like this happened again. That was really encouraging, because my worry was that the free speech union wouldn't be taken seriously, particularly by these august academic institutions, that they wouldn't even bother to respond to our letters. But they did take us seriously, and they responded in a very serious, grown-up way. And I think that helped establish our bona fides, our credibility.
1: You'll remember, as many of our listeners will remember, that when a couple of hundred, many of them very well-known people in the arts and letters community, signed on to an open letter published by Harper's Magazine, the people who signed that letter were themselves subject to cancel culture attack. The idea being that, well, you signed on to a letter supporting free speech, that makes me feel unsafe as a fill-in-the-blank... It's not clear to me whether that Harper's free speech project, however well-intentioned it was, which way it moved the needle. And to this day, I'm not sure. For a lot of the people who signed on to it, it just made them vulnerable to attack and they went to ground. Or I think in one or two cases, they actually rescinded their signature. Has that been the case with you, that people who have expressed support or joined your free speech union have ironically become subject to collateral attack on the basis of their support for your organization?
2: Until very recently, that hadn't happened we do keep our membership list confidential and don't disclose to anyone who's joined and we have various elaborate security protocols to try and prevent our list being hacked but recently there was a great free speech victory at cambridge university a philosophy fellow of gonville and keys college cambridge called arif ahmed led a campaign to amend a new free speech policy which uh, was being proposed at Cambridge by the vice chancellor and uh, the university council, which would have required university staff to respect the views of those whom they disagreed with. So it was essentially circumscribing academic free speech by this respect constraint. You're allowed to exercise your lawful right to free speech, provided in doing so you're not disrespecting
1: And just to jump in for people who aren't familiar with how these (laughs) culture war euphemisms work, the way that kind of thing is weaponized is that some gender-critical feminist comes in and says, yeah, I think, oh, I don't know, female prisons and female bathrooms should be restricted to people who are biologically female. And that opinion, while widely shared, is attacked as somehow being a form of word violence, that that is somehow itself intolerant or hateful toward people who are transgender, and so it's effectively censored on the basis of the kind of euphemism you're describing here. Am I right there?
2: Yes, that's exactly right. And Arif and others at Cambridge were concerned that if this became the official university policy, it would immediately be weaponized by political activists to try and make sure academics who disagreed with them were put through disciplinary processes, in some cases kicked out of the university. It would also be used as a pretext for no platforming invited speakers and so forth. So they were rightly worried about this apparently benign new free speech policy. So Arif led a campaign in Cambridge, interestingly, unlike most other universities, there was actually a vote on this. So the university staff were asked to affirm this new policy. Was it an open vote? It was an open vote amongst the Cambridge University staff, not the students, just the staff.
1: Did people know which way each staff member would vote? No, I
2: think it was a secret ballot,
1: I think. Ah, so that makes a huge difference.
2: Arif managed to get an amendment on the ballot, which in itself required him to get lots and lots of signatures. And the Free Speech Union helped with that because we have some members on the Cambridge academic staff. The amendment essentially said, you don't need to respect your opponent's point of view. You just need to tolerate it which is obviously much broader, much more permissive, much less restrictive, much harder to weaponize. And he then mounted this campaign, set out his argument. Right up until the vote, which lasted over several days, he and his fellow campaigners were very concerned. They discovered that the other side were whipping the academic administrators, not the academic staff. They thought they'd won the argument amongst the academic staff, but amongst the non-academic staff. They were concerned and they were being whipped by the advocates of this particular policy. And so we were quite concerned. We thought it was absolutely on a knife edge. We were waiting, you know, biting our nails for the result. And the result came through, I think it was the week before last, ARIF won. The Tolerance Amendment won by a margin of something like seven to one.
1: As I said, it'd be interesting to see how that ratio would have changed or maybe even reversed itself had the secret ballot not been implemented.
2: Absolutely. It was an interesting example, I think, of something we find quite often, which is um, when woke policies. When there's actually a secret ballot to see how popular they are, they often lose pretty badly. But just to go back to your original question, Arif is a member of the advisory council of the Free Speech Union and the leading proponent of the other side, Dr. Priyamvada Gopal, who is a Cambridge professor, she has done her best to draw attention to the fact that Arif is a member of the Free Speech Union's Advisory Council. And she describes the Free Speech Union as this, you know, sinister, far right, pro-eugenicist organization which defends race science, even by woke standards. She's a bit of an outlier. It has been used like that in that instance. But prior to that, I don't think anyone's ever been kind of tarnished because of their links to it.
1: This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon Cereal. If you're like me, these strange times we live in have featured a lot of cereal consumption. Cereal is comfort food, and there's been a lot that needs comforting. But what if I told you that breakfast cereal, one of the best parts of being a kid when most of us didn't have to worry about fitness and calorie intake, could be great comfort food without all that sugar and carbs? A serving of Magic Spoon comes with no sugar, none. 11 grams of protein, and only three net carb grams in each serving. Magic Spoon has been supporting Quillette for a while now, and I've heard from a lot of you about your favorite flavors. You can choose from the best-selling cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry flavors, plus brand new flavors, including cinnamon and peanut butter. I've tried all the flavors, except peanut butter, to which I am unfortunately allergic. They taste amazing, almost too good to be true, but the numbers are right there on the box, and those numbers are real. This is not like that Seinfeld episode where they all thought they were eating low-fat frozen yogurt, but they weren't. Go to magicspoon.com quilette Quillette to build your own custom variety box and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code QUILLETTE at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with what they call a 100% happiness guarantee. No one has the power to guarantee human happiness, of course. But the upshot is that if you don't like this cereal for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash Quillette and use the code Quillette for free shipping. And now, back to our podcast. You use terms like woke and you talk about progressive or some might say regressive forms of censorship on the left. One thing that's important to highlight is that conservatives embrace cancel culture when it suits them. I'm sure you're aware of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, known by the acronym FIRE in the United States. They've done a lot of great work for free speech on campuses, but they've noted quite candidly that Conservatives, for instance, religious conservatives, have taken things like trigger warnings, and they've demanded that there be trigger warnings if somebody talks about sex. To give an example, in Brazil, supporters of the populist right-wing president Bolsonaro, one of the popular tactics now is they will litigate against left-wing critics in all of Brazil's jurisprudential districts, The result being that you can bankrupt a critic of the president just by suing them in dozens of different places and making them get lawyers in all of those places. I realize the situation is very different in UK, in Canada, where I live. But have you sometimes been called upon to defend progressives who themselves are sometimes subject to what we would call cancel culture attack? Let me give you an example. Palestinian rights. I mean, you have seen often Zionist groups, right-wing groups try to shut down... Palestinian rights discussion on campus. We had an essay by Andy Lamy about the efforts to do that in the United States. I don't always agree with Palestinian rights advocates, but I think they should have the right to talk about their cause on campus. Is that the kind of issue you'd be interested in covering?
2: Yes, there is a currently a proposal which is being supported by the Secretary of State for Education here, Gavin Williamson, that all British universities should embrace a particular definition of anti-Semitism and prohibit anyone who runs afoul of that definition. And that would, including no platforming certain speakers, including some pro-Palestinian right speakers, no doubt. And we are about to publish a paper opposing that policy. There's another policy too, which is the prevent policy, which is Tony Blair passed a counter-terrorism Act as Prime Minister. And one of the clauses is this prevent clause, which tries to prevent radicalization. And that makes it unlawful to provide a platform to radical Islamists on university campuses and far right speakers and so forth. But it's often weaponized and its terms of reference kind of wildly extended just by people wanting to no platform their political opponents. And we are going to publish a paper opposing the prevent policy too. Generally speaking, though, if someone on the left is targeted by consumption conservatives, which doesn't happen nearly as often as the other way around, they tend not to seek the help of the free speech union, at least not yet. I'm hoping they will in due course.
1: Well, it's a good opportunity to point out the hypocrisy of some conservatives. An interesting case study is, is George Galloway. I consider him a fairly radical former political figure and activist. He's gone to bat in a unsettling way for Islamist extremists and in some cases terrorist groups. But there was a a successful movement to prevent him from coming to Canada to give a speech that was led by conservatives. At the time, I said, that's wrong. I disagree with Galloway. I don't respect his views, but I tolerate them. Do you think it would increase the bona fides of your group if you could get a good left of centre, maybe even very left of centre political figure to come on board and present a counterbalancing case study?
2: Yes, I think it would. We would also, I think, defend the right of George Galloway to speak. And we recently took issue with a decision by the Royal Holloway University's debating society's decision. They invited a figure on the left who's a bit like Galloway, shares some of the same views, called Chris Williamson, former Labour MP, has been, I think, probably unfairly accused of anti-Semitism. He was due to speak at this debating society and was no platform by the student union. And we went to bat for him. He hasn't actually thanked me yet or reached out to the free speech union to, you know, offer his uh, support. But nonetheless, we did do that. I think it it is absolutely critically important to get across to people, particularly young people, that speech rights don't just benefit people on one side of the political debate, but benefit people on all sides. I mean, there is this kind of mistaken idea, I think, that if you champion free speech rights, you're actually just experiencing. Extending the space, the platform, the airtime for people like us and reducing it for minorities, historically disadvantaged groups and so forth, whereas the truth is that it benefits everyone equally.
1: One of the weird things that I've noticed from some of these controversies that you and I have covered is sometimes the person advocating for free speech on a campus, for instance, or within a community is themselves a minority member, person of colour, visible minority BIPOC, whatever the polite term is, as of 15 minutes ago. Their speech is being suppressed by a bunch of woke white people. There's a very interesting case study in the UK involving a woman named Alison Bailey, who is black, self-identified lesbian, and they've tried to cancel her in all kinds of ways because she believes that female biology is a thing... Has there been some recognition that it isn't just white men who are looking for free speech and that in some cases the people who are most affected by this are the visible minorities in whose name a lot of these censorship campaigns are being waged?
2: Well, I do think it's becoming increasingly difficult for people on the woke left to deny that cancel culture is a real thing and to accuse us of just straw manning them. That might have had some credibility five years ago. But the number of people on the left who have been targeted and the number of people who aren't men, who aren't white, who aren't heterosexual, who've been targeted, I think makes it harder and harder to maintain. It's just a figment of disgruntled conservatives' imagination. And I think that was one of the helpful things about the Harper's letter. So
1: let's talk a little bit about another one of your successes. There was an effort at McGill University in Montreal – McGill happens to be my alma mater, where you had the student society and a bunch of, I guess, the usual suspects, various student groups, grad students, etc., demanding that the university retract its longstanding free speech policy and impose a restrictive speech code. The manifesto that they circulated was all about whiteness. Uh, decolonization, all that sort of thing, the free speech union put forward a very sternly worded letter. And a few days later, McGill put out an admirable statement in defense of free speech and rejected the demand to end free speech on campus. What would you say to those who say, look, if McGill University wants to impose a speech code, that's their right you're not really against censorship. Censorship is something that's imposed by government. You're restricting the rights of institutions to apply their own policy. Have people come at you with that argument, the idea that look, institutional actors, you may not like their policies, but it would be their right to impose these policies?
2: That comes up more often with reference to big tech. So Uh, When we object to the censorship policies of Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, some conservatives will push back and say, well, look, they're private companies. You know, you have to respect their freedom of association.
1: And just to jump in, a former Facebook engineer who wrote for Quillette last year and made this point, this person was very libertarian and decried the effective censorship regime. But at the end of the day, he said it is Facebook's right to exercise ideological censorship if it wants. And it sounds like that's your opinion too.
2: I'm not completely doctrinaire about this. It's coming up in the UK context. But just to go back to McGill before I get onto that, we weren't advocating in this petition we started on change.org that the Canadian government should intervene to prevent McGill from resiling on its commitment to academic free speech. We were just making the argument that we thought that would be a mistake. And we were also defending the speech rights of a particular academic who was targeted by this open letter that the student groups and student activist organizations had written to the Vice-Chancellor of McGill, Professor Carl Saltzman, former head of the Anthropology Department at McGill. Who,
1: by the way, has made some genuinely controversial remarks. You don't have to agree with those remarks to support his free speech rights, but as baseline, not everyone's going to agree with what he said. Totally.
2: We're always having to kind of make the point that just because we're defending someone's speech rights doesn't mean we necessarily agree with what they've said. Insofar as our petition had an impact, and the fact that the provost and vice principal published this statement shortly afterwards, reaffirming McGill's commitment to academic free speech, and also defending the right of Carl uh, Saltzman to set out his arguments in the public square without being punished, without being stripped of his academic title or privileges, it suggests it was influential. But we weren't threatening them with, you know, state intervention, or we weren't going to petition for state intervention if they did resile on their commitment to academic free speech. I think we were just making an argument. This is why you shouldn't, and they clearly sympathise with that argument. Um, But I think it's coming up in the UK context, because the current British government is talking about introducing a bill in the next parliamentary session to strengthen academic free speech at British universities. And the pushback from the university sector will certainly be this is state intervention in our own affairs, which is completely unjustifiable. And this in itself is a form of censorship, state totalitarianism. But I think it's a bit like the argument around liberal interventionism back in the 90s. Are you justified in using? state power in order to protect the rights of people in other countries, that was the kind of big argument. On the one hand, you're breaching the sovereignty, the right to self-determination of those states. But on the other hand, you're doing what you can to defend the autonomy and the rights of individuals within those states. I think it's the same sort of argument. And I actually always sympathize with the liberal interventionist position that the individual rights that you're defending trump the right of the state in question to self-determination and to you know be sovereign within its own borders. And I would disagree with, you know, Yeram Hazoni on that issue pretty strongly. And I think the same sort of argument crops up here. In some cases, if the state has to intervene to make sure that the speech rights of academics are properly protected, even though that does involve undermining the autonomy of the institution, I think nonetheless it's justifiable.
1: How much of what the free speech union is doing is basically just occupying the vacuum left over by other groups that once occupied the space? And I'm thinking in particular in the US context of the ACLU. And the ACLU was once all about civil liberties, but if you go to their Twitter feed now, it's it's mostly just sophomoric hashtags and slogans. It's indistinguishable from any of a number of other identity-based groups. Those groups were created decades ago in an era when the threat to free speech was largely government censorship. We're now beyond that era because most forms of de facto censorship are coming from, as you say, Silicon Valley or from universities, or a lot of it is just peer-to-peer shaming and mobbing. Do you ever expect that those old legacy civil liberties groups are eventually going to realize why they were created in the first place and come around to the kind of work that you're doing?
2: Yeah, I can't imagine they'll just leave the field entirely to us in perpetuity. But you're right. I think the fact that organisations like the ACLU in the UK, Liberty, have been much less energetic about defending the speech rights of people who transgress the sacred values of the progressive left than they were perhaps in the past has created a space for us. I also think that trade unions once upon a time were much better about defending the speech rights of their members. One of the reasons for the trade union movement starting in the 19th century, at least here, was to protect the rights of workers to criticize their bosses and to say they wanted to vote for socialist political parties without being fired. But, trade unions have kind of retreated from that space too.
1: And now, a brief shout out for another podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show, which you can find at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You've heard me talk about Jordan's podcast before, and you know that Apple named it one of its best podcasts in 2018. But if you haven't given it a listen, let me just tick off some of the guests this guy has managed to get. Bob Saget. Malcolm Gladwell, Dennis Rodman, Mark Cuban, and the late Kobe Bryant. And if you tune in regularly, you'll know that this isn't just a parade of famous people. Jordan also finds folks you've never heard of, who just happen to have fascinating stories. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. And now, back to our Quillette podcast. Some of the cases we've been involved in at Quillette with academics, it used to be the case that it never would have fallen on our desk because what would have happened is that the academic union would have gone to bat. And conservatives have rightly criticized unions in the past for going to bat for even in extreme cases, like you'd have some industrial worker who showed up to work drunk or did something incredibly stupid and endangered people, and the union would resist that person even being disciplined because that's the mandate of unions. They protect workers. But on campuses now, there have been a number of cases where academic unions won't support somebody who's being mobbed or whose speech rights are being suppressed because the kind of person who takes a leadership position in an academic union tends to be the same kind of person who's leading the charge on social media in favor of all kinds of woke hashtag campaigns. Again, in some cases, are you filling the vacuum left by academic unions or have there been academic unions that have surprised you and still do support free speech?
2: Well, in Canada and the US, there is the National Association of Scholars, which is very robust in protecting the speech rights of its members. Over here, the UCU is the largest academic trade union, and they most certainly don't defend the speech rights of all their members, pretty much only those they agree with, they're politically aligned with. So for instance, the UCU energetically backed the respect version of the Cambridge University free speech policy and was very much on the other side to Arif and his colleagues who were campaigning for the tolerance version of that policy. And I do think that lots of academics who in the past, particularly gender critical feminists, actually, the UCU has not been good about defending gender critical feminists. I think lots of those people are now feeling unprotected, vulnerable, almost homeless from an adequate professional representation point of view. And I think that certainly has helped the free speech union.
1: Yeah, you've got people like Kathleen Stock, who's a philosophy professor in the UK. If you follow her Twitter account, she's someone In the so-called gender-critical camp, I call it the biology is real camp, and she seems to be under siege from everybody. On the other hand, I can see how somebody like that might be hesitant to reach out to the free speech union. Is she the sort of person who you're concerned about?
2: Absolutely. She is certainly the type of person we would go to bat for. And I can imagine us having to do that.
1: But if you follow her Twitter, you'll know that a lot of the cancellation is done in a way that doesn't leave fingerprints. She'll be on a panel and she'll get an email saying, oh, we're restructuring the panel and this happens over and over. It's hard to defend somebody whose critics and whose antagonists are starting to adopt Kafka-esque approaches. Because they know there's people like you out there who are acting as watchdogs are the cancel culture enthusiasts changing their tactics to avoid consequences?
2: They often hide behind process. The no platformers claim it's not that they disapprove of this particular person, but they just didn't go through the correct process. And when they reviewed the processes they'd gone through, when they invited them, they realized they'd failed to do something or other. And it's purely for that technical, trivial reason, they've been no platform. But I think it's quite helpful to force them to fall back on these mealy-mouthed, completely implausible explanations, because it suggests that they don't really have the courage of their convictions. They don't believe strongly enough in their censorious speech policies to actually defend them in the public square. And exposing that, I think, is quite helpful and makes their side look weaker.
1: Sometimes people accuse me of being unduly optimistic in this area, but I get the sense especially now that Trump's been voted out of office, because I think a lot of this was a response to Trump. And I didn't like Donald Trump either, but I also don't like the militant, over-the-top cultural response on the left to the Trump phenomenon. You get the sense that, especially with recent political developments, obviously you have Boris Johnson in the UK who's making some good moves. He's recently gotten rid of implicit bias training which was discredited long ago in the civil service, as I understand. you get the sense our side is starting to find its footing?
2: I think that the combination of the BLM moment and the pandemic and all the people who've been cancelled or threatened with cancellation, either because they've dissented from BLM orthodoxy or dissented from COVID orthodoxy, it's hard to imagine 2020 hasn't been peak cancel culture and that, 2021 will be better. It can't possibly be worse than 2020. (laughs) Never say that. Culturally, I think there may be a slight shift taking place. But politically and institutionally, lots of the things which are downstream of culture, they seem to be still in the foothills of this woke cult. And it seems to be growing in organizations like the New York Times, in universities like Princeton, Harvard, progressive schools like Dalton that was one of the most recent examples if you look at the conquests that the woke cult is making across the kind of institutional landscape it's hard to imagine that things are going to get better anytime soon in Scotland there's a hate crime bill that's about to become law which if it does would I think make Scotland the least free speech friendly country in Europe and that would include Hungary and then England and Wales now have some very similar proposals that are being consulted about which uh, are actually even worse than the Scottish hate crime bill if they ever do find their way into an act of parliament. Northern Ireland has also just proposed the criminalisation of hate speech in a very censorious, heavy-handed way. And the EU is talking about prohibiting various forms of hate speech as well. You kind of think, well, what's wrong with prohibiting hate speech? But to give you an example of the kinds of things that will be prohibited, one of the people we're defending, one of our members is called Posey Parker. And she recently got into a spat with Change.org. Change.org published a petition by a trans activist urging the Oxford English Dictionary to change its definition of woman to something other than adult human female because, according to this activist, that's trans-exclusionary. And this petition got lots of signatures. Posey Parker started a rival petition saying, no, I think the OED should keep its definition of woman as adult human female. And Change.org took down Posey's petition on the grounds that it was hate speech. So defining a woman as an adult human female, according to... Change.org, which is purportedly a politically neutral organization, is hate speech. So when we talk about countries, the EU banning hate speech, we're talking about things like that. It's not nearly as benign as it sounds. So I think we are facing a real battle to defend free speech across multiple fronts, politically, institutionally. I think if we are beginning to make progress in the culture, that's only one very small part of the battle.
1: We're talking here about global English-speaking culture, which to some extent is now a homogenous geographically deracinated culture because of social media. Do you have any sense about how much of this is rooted in Anglo-cultural linguistic traditions? Because you do see journalists and scientists, say from France, who have noted with alarm, in some cases they've called it a new form of Anglo-colonialism, because you see these critical race theory and Black Lives Matter memes coming over from English countries and finding a home in French universities and such. Have you had any conversation with counterparts on the continent who do see this as rooted in a particular kind of English-based culture? It's
2: a really interesting question, and I do think that insofar as woke ideology is a quasi-religious phenomenon. It does seem to take root more easily in the Anglosphere than it does outside the Anglosphere. And that must have something to do with the Protestant tradition and the cyclical resurgence of Puritanism in various forms within the
1: Anglosphere. It is a kind of Puritanism. It's so deeply conservative. It's kind of crazy to me that a lot of these wokesters don't see how much they're channeling the spirit of 17th century joyless political conservatives.
2: They don't see it. I mean, one of the ironies of the woke tag, which is that they are awake and everybody who doesn't subscribe to their political worldview is somehow asleep. They're not seeing things clearly. They're imprisoned by, you know, various powerful forces.
1: It's the red pill, blue pill distinction from the matrix.
2: But the truth is, it's more like the opposite is the case. And maybe it's just our vanity. But I think of people like you and I as being fairly sober and grown up and awake. And people in this cult of being a bit like Scientologists, they've been captured by this quite dogmatic cult-like belief system. And they seem to have surrendered their autonomy and intellectual independence and just kind of do whatever is required of them to demonstrate their bona fides within the cult. And it seems like they're the ones who are being sort of somnambulistic and zombie-like, whereas we're being fairly awake.
1: (laughs) No one thinks they're in a cult. (laughs) You'll never find somebody who says, come join my cult.
2: One of the curiosities when confronting the wokesters is that if you confront them with Facts. If you say, no, this is the mainstream scientific consensus about this issue, you are an outlier. If you have any regard for empiricism, you really will have to abandon some of these crazy beliefs. That never works. It doesn't have any impact at all. It makes no dent. And there was an interesting book written by a psychologist in which he infiltrated a UFO cult. And they thought that when a comet passed, the world was going to end, they were all going to be elevated uh, into this spaceship and carried off. He really wanted to infiltrate this cult so he would find out how they dealt with reality when their beliefs ran aground, when the comet passed and nothing happened. He expected them to kind of, you know, reevaluate and kind of sober up and leave the cult. But none of them did. They just doubled down. They just thought of another reason to be members of the cult and why the world hadn't ended this time, but would end next Time.
1: Jehovah's Witnesses still exist, despite the fact that I think they've prophesied maybe half a dozen times the world would end.
2: But to me, that suggests that the Quillette Approach, if there is a Quillette approach, I mean, it's a very eclectic church, but the Quillette approach to fighting back is to use logic, reason, evidence, science. And of course, none of that works. It's kind of like almost naive to imagine it would. And one of the things that's become apparent to me, particularly since I set up the Free Speech Union, is that humor, satire, that seems to work a thousand times better.
1: I totally agree. They know what to do with anger, because anger to them is a sign of fragility or whatnot. They know what to do with piety, because they can out-pious any of us. But give them satire, give them humor, and they get very upset. Let me ask you one last question. All movements including the ones we're criticizing here, claim that they're scientific. They all claim that they're logical. Critical race theory and intersectionality in themselves arrogate to themselves the status of a sort of science, a science of racial analysis. But do you worry that in our opposition to the mob, that we become a kind of mob? Because I know if we call out somebody who's a woke cancel culture censor or trying to lead up a mob, we will sometimes stir up a pretty vicious backlash against that person their life becomes difficult because we're calling them out. What are the rules for anti-mob pro-free speech behaviour when our campaigns will have the same effect on these people? Do you worry about that?
2: Yes, I think we do have to be particularly scrupulous about not using some of the same tactics as the other side, because then we lose any hope of capturing the moral high ground. This came up recently, actually. A group of student activists wrote an open letter to the head of, I think, the geophysics department at Chicago, calling for Professor Dorian Abbott to be canceled, essentially, because he'd posted some videos on YouTube in which he took issue with the departure from merit-based admissions.
1: Completely mainstream, reasonable, moderate content. I want to distinguish this from some of the other cases There was nothing controversial about what he posted
2: incredibly mainstream, nothing remotely inflammatory. It was a very reasonable, good faith point uh, sort of intervention in this debate. So he was immediately targeted for cancellation by a mob within his department, mostly postdocs and grad students. We got this petition started on change.org to the president of the University of Chicago saying you have to reaffirm your commitment to the Chicago principles and make it clear that nothing's going to happen to this guy. And he did. He responded three days later. It was fantastic. It was just like the McGill situation. We linked to the open letter, but we realized that the people who'd signed the open letter, if we effectively published their names in this petition, might themselves be targeted on social media and come in for abuse. And so we managed to link to the open letter version of it and redacted all their names. So that wouldn't happen. I think it's really important to observe that sort of thing and not stoop to the depths that our opponents do.
1: Toby Young is my editorial colleague at Quillette and is the founder of the Free Speech Union. Thanks so much for being on our podcast. Thanks, John.
0: If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you'll find more content.